You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast, the political podcast from the News and Observer and the Insider. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, Another kind of hectic week at the legislature is the Senate Budget Week. So uh, as with all Senate budgets, including a lot of things that uh, don't necessarily go into how much you're spending on what, uh, lots of little policy provisions and and other things that the Senate wants to do, we're we're tucked into the budget. So there are lots of things to debate and uh, lots of... uh, items in the news this week. Uh, So we're going to start out with a little bit of that. Um, One of the big aspects of the budget that uh, provoked some pretty large-scale protests around the legislative building this week was the um, proposal for $500 tuition uh, at a number of UNC system schools that uh, have uh, had a bit lower enrollment uh, than some of their peers. Uh, A lot of them were HBCUs, and there was a lot of uh, outcry from, from folks in the HBCU community um, about what that might do long term to those schools and, and whether it was truly a, a good idea for the future of those schools. That ultimately got knocked out of the bill. Um, Senator Tom Apodaca, uh, the Senate Rules Chairman who'd sponsored the bill, uh, he decided uh, sort of last minute that he was going to take the HBCUs out, leaving just uh, UNC Pembroke, which is uh, predominantly, I believe, American Indian uh, population, and then Western Carolina, which is uh, predominantly white out in the mountains, sort of serving a more uh, impoverished uh, Appalachian region. Uh, and joining us to talk about that bill uh, is uh, John Alexander, a reporter here at the News and Observer, and also the uh, host of another podcast you ought to be listening to, the uh, HBCU Voice Podcast, where he discusses uh, all things HBCU and, and HBCU sports. Uh, John, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Colin. Yeah, well, tell us a little about what you're hearing uh, sort of in the HBCU, HBCU community uh, on this this bill. What was uh, sort of the, the big concerns that were, were coming up as this proposal was floated? Yeah, um, you know, a lot of the concerns, one of the main concerns, I'll say, was really the uncertainty um, surrounding the funding of this, um, you know, of this bill. And, you know, with them lowering tuition to $500 and them giving the HBCUs in Western Carolina and UNC Pembroke money, um, $70 million, um, you know, the concern was that it wouldn't be funded every i mean there's i mean it's not a guarantee that it'll be funded year after year so say it was funded the first two years and then a new senate decides they don't want to fund it anymore you have these schools that have a $500 tuition is there a plan to get them out of this hole and bring their bring their tuition back up um you know, it was just too much uncertainty around it. People um, didn't really trust it. Um, some said it devalued education. Dropping tuition to five hundred dollars wasn't really a good look. It kind of makes it look like a community college. Um, the bill started out bad with the name change. Yeah, that was one that was dropped early. They actually was it was it just the HBCUs they wanted to change the names of, or, or pretty much everything in there they it, were gonna. It was from my understanding, it was every um, school, but uh, you know. HBCU alumni and students have a lot of pride in their school, and um, it's been that way for many years. Some of them had different names when they first started, but, you know, it's been that way for the names have been that way for many years. And a lot of them have pride and they didn't want to, you know, have the names changed. There was really no reason for giving it. 
And if you change the names, you're essentially, um, you know, saying you control these schools and and by the name change and by lowering tuition and funding these schools, it, you know, you lose that independence you have as a school. You know, that was, you know, some of the sentiment of the HBC community. And and then there was that, you know, they were given A&T and North Carolina Central this, this scholarship. And some people felt that they were pitting these HBCUs against each other, you know, because on one side it benefits some HBCUs and on the other side, you know, you have the, you have the the drop in tuition and 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 the uncertainty around it. So, uh, you know, just it didn't look good all around. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I guess NCANT and and NC Central where where you went to school are are sort of uh, they're the the bigger HPCUs in the state out of the the public ones. They're uh, probably having less of the struggles that that some of the smaller ones uh, have had in recent years. Is that that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. It's yeah. no coincidence. Deborah Saunders White and Auntie's Chancellor didn't really speak out against it. Yeah, because I guess they're sort of in between a rock and a hard place. Is they they want to do right right by their schools, but they don't want to you know harm their their peer institutions in the process. Yeah, that's definitely correct. Yeah, and I guess uh, Apodaca's uh, big argument in this was that, you know, he, he's not—the uh, big concern, I guess, was that this was sort of going to be like a, a Trojan horse, that this was some way to, to, you know, eventually kill these schools by by defunding them uh, long-term. And, and Apodaca's response was uh, that, you know, he went to Western Carolina, his—, his uh, wife went there his kids went there and so if this was a bad idea you know he wouldn't be picking his school to be on the list um did, did that argument sort of resonate with people or was there just still this sort of skepticism about you know are these people really have these schools best interest at heart yeah i think there was still skeptic skepticism because he didn't really even go to the go to these schools and 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 you know inquire with them and and ask them what they really thought about it so you know just like any, you know, I cover the town of Garner regularly, and just like any government entity, when you go into a community and you want to rezone a property or you want to build a neighborhood, you know, you got to have a public hearing um, to see what, what people say about it. And, you know, they kind of, they didn't do that in these communities. So, you know, it was kind of untrustworthy from the beginning. So people were skeptical, and these are the same same people who who don't really see the value in the HBCU and think, you know, these schools should be a lot more diverse, which is, you know, diversity is really good, but, you know, some of these schools already are diverse and, and you just, you know, people don't really understand the intentions. Yeah. So. And I guess that was the worry with the name change too, is that you, if you sort of rebrand the schools as something else, do they, do they stay HBCUs or is they, are they marketed, you know, to not essentially not be HBCUs if you change the name and sort of disconnect from the the history of the schools. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're still, you know, I've heard that too, and they still are HBCUs because definition of HBCU is a historically black college and university, so it's always going to be historically black um, college. You know? So I really wouldn't say it would change whether it's an HBCU. It would ju- it would definitely change the landscape of things and and one of the main purposes of HBCU was to give young African Americans an opportunity um to go to college, you know, at a lower tuition. Um so I, I guess if you if you make a concerned effort to increase the diversity, some of these young African Americans who might can't get into other colleges lose out on that opportunity. 
Yeah. Well, what was the reaction that you were, did this sort of go beyond North Carolina in terms of the, the level of outcry? Um, it seems like we were seeing some sort of national uh, players uh, enter this debate um, just on or on behalf of HBCUs in general and not necessarily just limited to alumni and, and supporters of, of these schools within North Carolina. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, the HBCU community is a tight community. Um they all stick together and like you said roland martin was out there yeah he's a pretty prominent radio host um. yeah yeah and uh i thought that was pretty interesting and then there's a a a national um kind of like media organization online media organization called hbcu digest and i know they were following you pretty closely because that's how i saw the news break they retweeted you and so a lot of um a lot of HBCUs seem concerned, you know, when you when you do something to one HBCU, it feels like it's an attack on all HBCUs. So definitely did catch the eyes of, of people many HBCUs around the around the country. Yeah, it sounds like uh Senator Apodaca was deluged by calls uh in his uh floor speech uh yesterday about uh, his decision to pull HBCUs out of the bill. He actually said he'd, his office had received one death threat, which I, I, I guess these days is common on any issue that becomes sort of the national furor is there's always like one or two people who just, you know, take it to that extreme level. Um, but I think he, he really seemed like he was just really shocked and caught off guard by uh, the level of, of response to this. But, mm-hmm. but I think you're right. It, it, it comes down to you know, how much did you engage people from the start with an idea like this and who was at the table in, in developing it? And it seemed like it really just came out of the, the Senate leadership um, and then was just sort of this already fully crafted bill by the time these schools actually got to to see it, uh, which is kind of how things tend to, to operate in the Senate. You don't have a lot of opportunities for public comment. Uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, outreach uh, about legislation they're they're trying to do to uh, folks who are, are likely to be affected sometimes, um, and that can result in these sort of things because even if it might have been a good idea if you'd gotten buy-in from people early on, um, then people if they feel left out of the process and they they're much less likely to support what you're what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think if they had a plan, if they talked to the HBCU community in these schools beforehand, and they had a plan to say, hey, if this doesn't work, we're going to do A, B, and C, and, and you're going to be all right, we're going to go back to the old ways, and then hey, it might have worked, but, you know, didn't talk to the people, and that's how things work in, in, in today's society, you don't talk to the people, they're going to be against it. Yeah. And I heard from some of the Republicans, they sort of made the claim, well, you know, you, you guys just sort of just trust us because we're Republicans and maybe this idea would have gone over better if uh, if Democrats had uh, floated it. Do you think that would have changed the the reaction to this or really it was more more about how it was rolled out than who was rolling it out? I think it's true in some sense. Like I said, they didn't they don't have a, a trust in, in these particular senators, especially Phil Berger. Um, yeah, it's worth pointing out. I mean, what is it? Elizabeth City State was uh, targeted for closure by some of these same legislators just a few years ago. So that's that's fresh in the minds of people particularly associated with that school. Yeah. So how can you trust these people? I mean, you know, really, like, uh, I mean, if a de- Democrat rolled out the plan, yeah, I think people would, you know, be a little more interested in learning more about it. But you're going to have some people who are going to research it and tell you, you know, I don't know if this is a really good idea. So I, I think maybe people could have talked through it. But at the same time, it, it still didn't seem like a sustainable plan. Yeah, we'll be interested to see where it goes from here. The uh, budget from here will have the 
uh, or at least the Senate budget will have Western and, and Pembroke in this plan. We'll have to see if the House is even willing to put those two schools in this $500 tuition approach, um, and if we see some outcry from those schools now that uh, yeah, I suspect we'll see the, the outcry from HBCUs die down, which means if, if these other schools uh, have active alumni who have concerns, we're going to be, be hearing from them. Um, and then if it if it completely goes through, we'll we'll get to see how this this whole thing works, and you know whether several years down the road there are more schools asking to be added, or whether these schools are saying hold up, put us back where we were. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested to see. I haven't really heard any comment from Western Carolina, Pembroke. Have you? Not a whole lot. There are a couple of folks in the legislature who who went to those schools, and they say, oh, this is going to be a great thing for Western. And I really haven't heard anything from Pembroke, but you know, I don't know if it's uh, they're not as well organized or if they're are supportive of this, but it's certainly, um, you know, there's not not a uh, necessarily a national organization of you know predominantly American Indian colleges. So yeah. you know, I think they're if if they were angry, they, they probably got got drowned out by just the the sheer volume of of commentary from folks in the the world of HBCUs. Yeah, like I said, if you they uh, feel if you attack one HBCU, you feel like you're attacking the whole HBCU community. So yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much, John, for uh, stopping in, and uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be back to uh, talk about some of the other uh, developments uh, down at the legislature this week. Stay with us. Most of us, or our ancestors, came here from someplace else. No matter how we got here, we all know this is a great place to live. To keep it that way, it's critical we attract top talent for our schools and high-tech businesses and hard workers for our small and local businesses. Exactly. If we want to attract great people so the Triangle continues to be a great place to live, then we want the Triangle to be a welcoming place where everyone feels comfortable no matter where they're from. Brought to you by UnitingNC.org. Welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Uh, jumping into some other topics uh, around the legislature this week, uh, we're joined now by Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Uh, Craig's been handling some of the uh, environmental stuff this week, uh, and I guess the one thing that we didn't hear a whole lot in the news but uh, is is worth watching out for uh, is the uh, controversial coal ash bill that uh, made its way through, uh, I guess it's passed both chambers now and is now sitting on the governor's desk awaiting what we assume will be his veto uh, Tell us a little about what what's uh, coming up with that. Yeah, my prediction is the veto is today because it's Friday, and why not? Seems like a good day for a veto. Uh, I always like to veto things on Fridays. Yeah, usually around six o'clock or something yeah. when you're ready to go home. Um, the governor did uh, have a brief encounter with reporters earlier in the week, and we, you know, asked him if he was going to be uh, definitely vetoing it, and he said, "Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it." And uh, we asked him if he was going to also, as he had said, pursue it in court once the veto is overridden, because they have enough votes to override the veto. There's no question about that either. And uh, I think that he said, I'll be making a statement on that, but I mean, we, we expect he'll go to court. Uh, um, you know, and this, this, the stage for this was all set, even though the top dogs at the environmental agency and the administration went to a House committee, said, don't do this. Uh, Secretary Vandervaart, the head of uh, the environmental agency, over the weekend kind of issued a special plea. Look, you, know, you don't need to do this this coal ash cleanup plan. The plan that our department put in place is going to uh, always required water hookups, which is what this new bill would do for people who live in who have uh, water wells near coal ash plants. 
Uh, and also they're saying the uh, this bill would um, stretch the time out. There wouldn't be any water hookups for a long time. Um, but anyway, the main the governor's main objection is that he doesn't want the legislature to appoint executive c- uh, branch commissions. So that's what will get it back into court. So that's that's where that stands. Uh, we'll be hearing about it for quite a while. Yeah, any sense for why he didn't just go ahead and immediately veto it? Uh, it's running out of clock or anything? Or? Yeah, I, I don't know. What is it? They have 10 days because of when they're in session. Is that right? Or uh, Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so. he's, he's got he's got the time. It's yeah, a question he has, whether the, he wants to has do. the time. I guess he's been running around doing other things and hasn't had time to compose a statement. I think there'll be, probably be quite a lengthy, maybe I'm wrong, but there'll be a pretty detailed <clears throat> excuse me, statement about why he's vetoing, vetoing this. <clears throat> and it kind of will rehash the, uh, the arguments of this case that went to the Supreme Court that Gave the said the governor said that the legislature overstepped its authority when it created the, a commission, a coal ash management commission, giving itself the uh, majority of the appointments. This new bill fixes that, gives the governor the majority of the appointments, makes some other concessions, but the governor says you they shouldn't be able to do that at all, no matter how you, no matter who has the appointments. So, well, jumping over to another sort of water related topic, uh, another sort of quirky aspect of the Senate budget debate this week was the uh, re- replacement plan for the solar bees, those sort of lake stir pollution control devices that they'd put out in Jordan Lake uh, have now decided are, are not functional and uh, have, have decided to go in other directions. Um, and now the, the new tool is apparently freshwater mussels. Or, yeah, or is, I, where is this coming from? I don't know where that's coming from. I didn't see that coming at all. Of course, I'm not sure we saw the gizmos known as solar bees, the worrying, whirling floating devices that were supposed to stir up this algae in the lake, in Jordan Lake. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw that coming. This is kind of, that was kind of unproven technology, as it turns out. Um, so now somebody has the idea of, at least it's more natural, I guess, putting freshwater mussels in there to eat the, uh, to, to consume the algae. But I think there's, I'm not sure how, how well thought out that is either. There's some concern that the presence of mussels will create their own problems uh, in the lake. Um, Jordan Lake has just been a, a, a problem from the beginning, and I think they knew it was going to be almost from the time the uh, Army Corps of Engineers built it. It's, it's never had the, right, the water quality standards for, for being a major drinking water supply uh, that, that it should have. Um, so th- the Democrats dealt with that some years ago by putting together over a long process rules, what are known as Jordan Lake rules, and that addresses upstream pollution. It's the you know, cities and counties and the development and the runoff and wastewater spills, all that stuff upstream, which is causing all this, but that is a billion-dollar proposition, and upstream interests don't want to pay that kind of money because they don't have it. I mean, who does? So that's a real standoff there. But these rules have sort of been a little, some of partly in place, and they've been pending, and we're trying the solar bees until we could see if the rules worked. Um, but part of the Senate budget would flat-out repeal those real rules once and for all and say, we need, they had this kind of this odd section with this long preamble, like, whereas things haven't worked, everything we've tried hasn't worked for the last 12 years, whereas we got to do something, we need a statewide consistent plan, uh, we're going to repeal what, what's been in place. Environmentalists are very concerned about that. And um, that's kind of, that's, that was kind of an unexpected twist to emerge from the, uh, from the Senate this week. Yeah, and it was interesting to see sort of the, uh, the follow-up for that. Uh, I guess Senator Mike Woodard came out with, a, he's a Democrat from uh, uh, Durham, I believe, uh, came out with a, 
amendment to sort of uh, repeal that part of the uh, the budget and go back to the original Jordan Lake rules. Uh, that got pulled off the table in one of these uh, uh, common maneuvers, I think, in Senate budget deliberations, where, uh, where Senator Tom Apodaca, one of the Republicans, will propose a substitute amendment, which basically prevents a vote on the original amendment put forth by the Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, essentially basically killing it and, and cutting off the, the debate on, on that provision. So uh, in this case, Senator John Alexander no relation to the John Alexander we were talking to earlier mm-hmm. on the show, um, uh, comes up with uh, his own amendment, uh, which I guess is more focused on this uh, freshwater mussel angle. Um, and I hadn't read through all the details of what he was proposing versus what was sort of in the original budget. Um, but it's sort of interesting to me to see a Raleigh lawmaker, particularly one like Alexander, who's in a very uh, closely fought district. Uh, it's a district that sort of uh, has a fairly close margin between Democrats and Republicans every time uh, pushing this issue, because I think this is something where environmentalists may be uh, hitting him on uh, come November um, if he's perceived as um, as being uh, less than positive towards the, the lake uh, water quality sort of thing. Yeah, and it's been a split between Republicans and or among Republicans, too, actually. The Kerry Republicans have had to represent downstream interests. They, it's to their advantage to have a clean lake. And I, I actually don't know how Senator Berenger voted on this. Uh, yeah, she was, she actually, was an interesting thing about Berenger, um, was that she was not voting on the budget in general this year as a sort of a conflict of interest related to her work hmm. with the UNC, um, was recused from, from the budget. So hmm. uh, I don't know if that had anything to do with that or huh. not. But um, Well, driving this is, is a couple of uh, significantly powerful senators, Trudy Wade and Rick Gunn, both from yeah. up, upstream interests. Because yeah, Wade is Greensboro, yeah. Gunn is Burlington. Burlington yeah. And both of those are communities that if these rules went yeah. into place would, I guess, have to uh, really be concerned about their development approach, right. do all these extra very expensive things in right. order to protect water quality downstream. Yeah. Gunn says it would just be prohibitively expensive to do everything that the Democrats and the environmentalists want to do. Trudy Wade is just sort of against environmental regulations wherever she uh, thinks they can be shaved off. I mean, I'm not saying she's against the environment. I'm saying she's pretty hardcore about deregulation on these issues. So, you know, those were a couple of senators really driving this. All right. Thanks, Craig. And we're going to turn next to uh, Lynn Bonner from the News and Observer. Lynn's been covering some of the uh, education action over at the legislature this week. And uh, first, Lynn, there's a sort of a, a odd thing coming out of State Board of Education uh, related to the math curriculum that uh, seems to be pr- prompting some outcry and folks in the educational community. What, what's all that about? Well, it's really not so odd, but what they're doing is they're um, looking at the math standards in high school and restructuring them. The state board does this every five years. Um, and uh, they're particularly um, controversial now because of National uh, Common Core Standards, which the state adopted some years ago and has been using for four years now. And... Um, the integrated math, the approach to teaching math so that algebra, geometry, and statistics are taught each year rather than having um, specific courses in algebra and geometry, uh, as the state had um, uh, before 2012, I believe. So that's all been um, kind of a Uh, big messes, as some people see it. Um, There's a preference among some teachers and teacher educators to teach 
math in an integrated fashion, saying it's more it, it's more true to life that people don't in in the real world don't see uh, a problem dealing only with geometry or a problem dealing only with algebra or a problem dealing only with statistics. That usually all those come in a bundle. So um, it's more realistic to teach mathematics in, a, in a, an integrated fashion. Um, but that some teachers and parents and students just don't like it. I mean, even some people who like the th- integrated math in theory say that, um, you know, the state never uh, the, uh, adopted textbooks for integrated math. So, uh, and a lot of um, a, a lot of districts don't have the ability to buy those materials, so they're jumping from textbook to textbook. There's really it, it's just choppy and confusing for for a lot of people. So um, the legislature wants the schools to go back back to teaching the dis- distinct courses to algebra and geometry. Um, the state board is going ahead with its revisions that include the integrated math approach. So the legislature this week, uh, the Senate, started debating a bill that would essentially force um, uh, the these discrete courses back into the high school, basically negating what the state board wants to do. Um, but but there was no vote on that bill. Um, they're saying they're going to vote on that next week. And, of course, even if it gets through the Senate, it's a question about whether the House will go along. Um, and it also apparently didn't like what uh, the state board has done or what the last uh, review commission did uh, in terms of its recommendations for changing uh, from Common Core because it also has established – um, another review commission uh, or another review that would have the community colleges involved go through the standards again. So there is uh, some discontent among the senators uh, with what's going on with standards um, uh, on the DPI and State Board of Education level. And they say they're going to have recommendations for uh K-8 math next year. So um, definitely some some clashing of, um, of uh, views on math uh, that's playing out um, in the legislature. Yeah, is this becoming sort of a partisan issue, or is this sort of the legislature's, uh, certain legislators who have power in the Senate wanting to uh, sort of go a different direction than the state board? Well, the board, um, well, the committee vote was unanimous. Uh, so there was no no Democrat spoke against it. Um, but there, yeah, and, but one of the Republicans said, well, why don't we just tell the, tell the schools to use the math curriculum that's used by homeschoolers? Uh, so there is, <laughs> there is um, uh, sort of a creeping... Um, uh, uh, oversight of education and curriculum. I mean, we see, you know, year to year that the legislature is more directing a curriculum and what they want to be taught when. Um, but this is, um, uh, you know, it seems to be becoming more and more advanced um, as the years go on. 
Yeah. Well, other uh, education topic that was uh, taken center stage this week was achievement school districts, this idea of uh, taking low-performing schools, turning them over to charter school operators. Yeah. Uh, How did that go in the the House? Another hugely controversial issue and a lot of lobbying on this one. Um, And uh, it passed the House, not by as narrow a margin as some people believed it would. But it's interesting that um, we had some a few Democrats voting for it, and uh, one prominent Democratic supporter arguing for it strongly, saying that, you know, the state is losing kids in schools that are substandard year after year, and they need to try something else. And um, 11 Republicans voting against it. Um, Achievement School District have been tried in some other states, neighboring state of Tennessee, this uh, special committee over the winter looked at closely, and um, they have a spotty record. I mean, for the three years in Tennessee uh, where they've been tried, um, there was a study that said that they really didn't do much of anything. Um, and But something else that Tennessee had tried called uh, innovation zones, where there are schools that are um, that the districts continue con- to control but are treated like charters, um, they showed clear results. This uh, bill has been um, turning around the legislature for more than a year and has sort of moved from Achievement School Districts Plus, uh, then Achievement School Districts Plus I-Zones and Achievement School Districts Plus uh, Principal Turnaround, which is essentially... Um, the district being able to replace the principal and uh, instead of having it become a charter school. Um, So the Senate seems interested in this idea, but as uh, the Senator Tillman said yesterday, there are a lot of moving parts. So, uh, you know, it's still a question whether that's going to come out in the short session. But, you know, there's this, we have a Senate that is inclined to uh, like charter schools. Um, and as I said, a lot of lobbying might behind this bill. So we might see some achievement school districts coming out of the legislature this year. Yeah, does this bill have any sort of provision for where these schools would be selected, or is this going to be? No, it's it's statewide. Um, and there is something about uh, geographical representation. So they uh, supposedly the um, the su- new superintendent they would hire to to oversee this district would be selecting from all over the state. Okay, so there'd probably be a little bit here and there. and Exactly. All right. Uh, thanks, Lynn. And we're going to be back in just a moment with our final segment, Headliners of the Week. Stay with us. Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Head, 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 headliner of the Week. And welcome back to this week's Domecast. It is indeed time for Headliners of the Week, and uh, it's the segment in the show, as always, where we uh, ask our panelists to uh, spend about a minute arguing for uh, different uh, who they think is the, the biggest uh, headliner or uh, newsmaker uh, this week in state politics, um, and then we pick a, a winner out of those uh, nominations. And we're going to start off this week with uh, Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer. Craig, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to reprise a nomination from a guest we had on the show earlier this year, one of our 
uh, one of our biggest fans, uh, Josh Lawson, Lawson, the uh, general counsel for the State Board of Elections, who uh, at the, that time nominated the three-judge panel, federal panel, who made a ruling in the redistricting case. Well, yesterday, last night, Thursday, the same, I believe it was the same, yeah, it was the same three-judge panel, uh, ruled that uh, against a challenge for the districts, uh, for these new congressional districts that the legislature drew, uh, which is a good thing because the election is on Tuesday, and I don't know what would have happened if they would have uh, ruled otherwise. But yeah, a lot of really disappointing congressional candidates who've been yeah. trying to run. Sometimes some of them for the second time around. Yeah, in it's already year. already goofy. They're running for the second time. It's an unusual primary. It's a winner-take-all primary because uh, there, there won't will be no runoff. So three-judge panel. All right, the three-judge panel uh, finally weighing in. We were we've been waiting this ruling for a while. It seems yeah. like uh, it just threw all this uncertainty into this whole. June 7th primary process. Everybody um, was marching forward as if it was going to happen. So Yeah, we, and then there was the concern. I think it became a more and more remote possibility as we get closer to June 7th that they could just say, uh, no, these districts are not going to work. We're going to draw our own districts and set an election who knows when, uh, which, like I say, would be very disappointing to the folks that uh, have been uh, running fairly strong campaigns in, in all these new districts that have been drawn. All right, uh, three judge panels in the hat. Thanks, Craig, for that. And we'll turn next to Lynn Bonner from the News and Observer. Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I was weighing freshwater mussels because, as Craig said, who knew, um, versus an education-related um, headliner. But I'll go with ed- the education theme and continue with that this week. And uh, pick New Hanover County Schools since they've uh, made a lot of news, not really in our circulation area, but still um, they're uh, they're making national news. First, um, for their proposal to ban skinny jeans um, as part of their dress code, and now for banning novelist Clyde Edgerton from his kids' graduation. So um, I'll go with uh, New Hanover. All right, New Hanover Schools uh, is uh, Lynn Bonner's choice uh, for that. And, and what was the reason for banning Clyde Edgerton? It was something about he had yeah. uh, done a, like a lawsuit or something no, about... No, he was raising questions about um, the diversity or lack thereof of the um, Emer- Spanish Immersion pro- Program at one of the schools. Um, the school apparently claimed that he illegally obtained some student data, which he says never happened. But the upshot is uh, they said he couldn't go to his kid's graduation. All right. So Clyde Edgerton uh, out in the cold uh, on that. He'll have to go walking across Egypt or something in order to... uh Past the time. That was a terrible joke. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Lynn, for that. And we'll turn lastly to John Alexander, News Observer reporter and host of the uh, HBCU Voice podcast. Uh, John, who's your uh, pick for headliner of the week? I'm a rookie at this, but my headliner will be the HBCU community for rallying uh, to get uh, these three HBCUs Elizabeth City State, Winston Salem State, and was it Fayetteville State? Fayetteville State, was Fayetteville the, uh, State I thought so. And uh, getting them removed from this bill, uh, they band together, and uh, they, uh, in a way, kind of force Senator Tom Akabeka. Apodaca. Yeah, it's always hard to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> from removing this language. Now, I do want to be clear. I don't support, if it is true, the death threat that he received. But other than that, uh, everything was pretty calm and well organized so that's my headliner yeah thanks for that john so we've got uh uh, the hbcu community we've got the new hanover county school district um and uh we've got the three judge panel um 
for its uh, role in uh, the uh, redistricting case. Um, and I think I'm going to have to go with uh, the HBCU community on this one because it's pretty rare in, in covering the legislature that you see um, protests that uh, cause the, the Senate Republican leadership to change their mind. Uh, you know, the, the Moral Monday crowd has been trying to uh, get those guys to change their position on, on various things for years and have not had a whole lot of success. But in, in a matter of a week or two, uh, the, these big rallies, all these uh, sort of mobilization campaigns from uh, folks in the, in the HBCU world uh, have caused them to, to reconsider and, and essentially to drop the pro- proposal as concerns those. So, uh, John, you uh, win this week with, with that nomination. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 